Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. That was beautiful. Good morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. Good to see you. Let's get to it. Genesis chapter 17 is where we find ourselves this morning. And if you do not have a Bible, maybe you forgot yours, or you just do not own a Bible, you're visiting today, we would love for you to use one of the Bibles that you can find in the rack underneath the chair in front of you. I think you would be especially helped today if you opened up that Bible and followed along. And if you don't own a Bible, you're free to keep that Bible as our gift to you and read it. We pray that, that God would show himself to you in it and that you'd come back and that it would, uh, it would just uh, bless you. So Genesis 17 is where we are today. If you aren't used to looking up books in the Bible, Genesis is the first book in the Bible, and you can find Genesis 17 in the Bible in the chair in front of you on either page 10 or 12, depending on what, which copy you have. As you're finding it, let me mention a couple things. We're working our way through Genesis, and next week um, I'll be out of town. This Monday morning, tomorrow, early Monday morning, Jennifer and I and our four kids are getting on a jet plane, and we are going to my home country of California. We've got to get our passport stamped and update our visas yearly. So we're going to spend uh, about 10 days visiting my family there in California, and uh, then I'll be back in, uh, the, the week following. Uh, so Next Sunday on July 6th, we will just continue on through Genesis, and Will Hawk will be preaching on Genesis 18 in this really beautiful chapter about Abraham pleading to God to save this wicked city. And so um, you can, can count on that and look forward to, to Will's ministry. And as I mentioned, Will, Will and the youth group and uh, a good number of folks from Crosspoint are away this Sunday. They were, they're at a youth retreat. And do pray for them because they, they left Thursday. They're coming back this afternoon. They've had a great time. But on Thursday evening when they were at Six Flags, the vans were broken into. And uh, some kids had all of their stuff stolen, all their clothes and everything. So it's been kind of a, a punch in the gut to uh, some of the kids, as you can understand. But they've just sort of plowed through. Will has shepherded them well through that. Uh, and in fact, in God's kind providence, the night before, on Wednesday night... Will was teaching in the youth group about God's sovereignty over evil and even wickedness. And so it was kind of, I hate that it happened, but it was kind of a, 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 an opportunity for, for the kids to realize and, and uh, to, to put that truth into application in their lives. So do pray for them as they're on their way back, probably even as we speak. And, uh, and thank God for Will and the leadership team there that have just done a great job. And I think the kids have had a, a good time despite a tough beginning. All right, well, if you are a visitor, and this is your first Sunday, you've picked quite a doozy, because Genesis 17 is about circumcision. <laughs> and this is why, friends, why it is a great value of ours at the church to just work our way through the Bible. Because who wakes up on the last Sunday of June in the Deep South and says, you know what? This church that we started about nine years ago that seems to be going well, let's just end June on a sermon on circumcision. Well, not many people, unless you just have this great commitment that the scriptures all, friends, this is a, this is a really important Sunday for us, because 
is we work through chapters like this that seem to, we wonder, how is this relevant for me? Oh, friends, there is such rich truth and gospel treasure in Genesis 17 that, I mean, I, am, I cannot wait to get into it. And so listen, uh, here's our plan. We're going we're gonna to read and stop, read and stop. And I've got four truths that I want to unfold for you. It's not so much an outline, so I'm not going to give them to you right away. We're going to have to unfold them as we go through. But here's what I pray. And, and, and Chris pl- prayed so beautifully this morning, and then Reynolds did as well. And I pray that if you are a Christian your heart would be stirred with affection for Jesus and his work and how you'll see these, this mosaic of the scripture, how God takes this Old Testament sign of circumcision and how it points towards Christ. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, maybe you think you are, but you're not truly. Or maybe you're conscious of the fact that you're not trusting in Jesus. I pray today that as you come into this room, you, by God's Holy Spirit, that he would, through this chapter and through his holy word, would show you the beauty of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be, to be in Christ. So without further delay, let me pray and let's, let's get into this, this beautiful chapter. Well, Father, these are, these are enormous truths that we will unpack today. I do not feel sufficient for the task because I am not. So I need your help. I need your help to stay on task, to be on point, to be helpful. Lord, please give us clarity. Please show us Christ. Lord, warm our hearts for the beauty of the gospel. I pray that you, by your sovereign mercy, would give the gift of life today to people that walked into this room unbelieving. Do these things, I pray, Father, for the glory of your name, for the good of your people, and for the salvation of the lost. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Genesis 17, verse 1. We've been on this roller coaster ride. Remember Genesis 15 a couple Sundays ago was this mountain peak of God cutting a covenant with Abram, and then he descended into a valley as he disobeyed God in Genesis 16, and now we come back to a mountain peak where God is going to change Abram's name to Abraham and institute a sign of his covenant, the sign being circumcision. So verse 1, chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land 
of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Okay, let's stop there, and here's something that I want us to see, the first truth in this beautiful chapter that I want to unfold for us that I want you to see, and it is this truth, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit. I want you to see that grace comes before obedience. The grace that God gives, not because of anything that Abraham has done or anything because anybody else or we have done, grace, saving grace, comes before the requirement of obedience. So I want you to see the connection between Genesis 17, which we're going to unfold today, and Genesis 15, which we read two weeks ago. There's a very important order for you to see here. In Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham and he cuts this covenant with Abraham, Abram at that time, and he gives Abraham eyes to see. He gives him the gift of faith, whereby then Abraham trusts in God, not because of anything that Abraham had done at that point, but simply because God gave him faith, gave him belief, and Abraham took this gift that God gave him and he exercised it in God. And remember that beautiful line in Genesis 15, 6? It says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then the apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4, who is now offering commentary on what's going on in Genesis 15, is saying that we too then, like Abraham, are counted righteous not because of anything that we have done in the flesh or because of any good works or because of any obedience, but because of the faith that God gives us as a sovereign gift that we then trust in him with, we are counted righteous. So the point of Genesis 15 is we are saved not by our works, but by God's mercy who gives us faith, which we then trust in Christ with, and we are saved by Jesus' work and not our own. So Genesis 15 is a decisive, beautiful, God-centered chapter that tells us we can't save ourselves. God saves us by giving us the thing that we requ- he requires of us, which is faith that we then look to Jesus with, and we're saved by Jesus' work and not our own. Then, after Genesis 15, comes Genesis 17, where God says, in light of what I have done for you, giving you righteousness, giving you faith that you believe in me with, in light of my sovereign life-giving gift to you, now you must obey me. So friends, don't miss this order here is that Genesis 15, grace, God coming to Abraham, giving him what he needs, and then Genesis 17, Abraham necessarily being told, commanded by God, now because I have saved you, because I've given you faith, now you obey me. So grace comes first, and then obedience. Friends, why is it so important that we see this? Because seeing this rightly, on it hinges the gospel. You see, here's the difference between the gospel and religion. And by religion, I mean any man-made construct, any other form of faith, whether it be moralistic Christianity or 
Judaism or uh, Islam or whatever it is, the difference between the one true gospel and all other man-made attempts to make himself right with God, which I'm going to call religion, is this, is that the gospel says God has come to us when we were dead in our sins. I give you life. I do all the work. I give you the gift of faith whereby then you look to me. And because of my mercy and not because of your grace, you're alive. Now, because I have made you alive, because I have given you what you need, now you obey me and love me and follow me. Whereas religion says, if you do this, if you, you know, follow the rules, if you get circumcised first, or if you are kind to people around you, or if you're relatively better than other people, then God will be pleased with you. Friends, this is the gospel, and it's true, and it gives life, and this is religion, and it's dead, and it kills. So do you see the important order of God coming first in sovereign grace to Abraham, giving him life, whereby then he is enabled to believe in God, And then the command which comes after it. Now live this way. Reynolds referenced it when he was praying out of Ephesians 1. This beautiful structure we see in the New Testament letters so often in Paul. In Ephesians and Colossians, he will take the first few chapters and he will talk about the indicative of what God has done in Christ to save a people for himself. And then as a result of the gospel, then comes the next few chapters, which are the imperative. Because of what God did, by no merit of your own, by no work of your own, but simply because of his sovereign mercy, because of what God has done in you to make you alive. Now live this way, the imperative that comes after that. And we see that pattern even here in Genesis 15 and 17. So friends, do not miss this as we proceed. That God has made a people for himself, not because of their ethnicity, not because of their ability to follow the law, not because of any ceremony or cutting away of the flesh called circumcision. He has made a people for himself before circumcision, before the law. And salvation is all of grace. And God reveals himself to Abraham as uh, God Almighty. The Hebrew word there, El Shaddai, is this beautiful name of God that is, speaks to God's utter and extreme power. And notice here that he changes Abraham's name. God is saying to Abraham, look, you can't change yourself. I'm the one who has changed you. Now in light of what I have wrought in your heart, in light of that, now you are going to obey me and walk before me. And this is what he says to Abraham in Romans 4, verse 17. Paul commenting on it. He says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Friends, Paul's commentary on what's going on here in Genesis 17 is a beautiful picture of the gospel. God does not cooperate with us and say, you know, I've searched the earth and there's some pretty good people out there. One of them's named Abraham. He's got some raw material that I'm going to work with, and I'm going to add my blessing to what I already see in Abraham. No, friends. Do you notice Paul's commentary here? He says that God 
calls into life things that do not exist. In this sense, he's talking about a nation through a man. But friends, that truth is magnified to represent how God makes a people for himself. We were dead in our sins and God makes us alive. He calls people into believing faith in Jesus where faith did not exist. Have I made my point sufficiently, I hope? Okay, I'll move on. My point is that grace comes before obedience. All important truth to see, not just in Genesis 17, but also through the rest of the Bible. And then I want to, before we move on, to start reading in verse 9 again, I want to just help us understand, uh, I think more biblically, this was very helpful for me to just kind of buckle down on this truth, to understand what the Bible means when it talks about the offspring of Abraham. So notice in verse 7, God is establishing this covenant with Abraham. And he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring, which then later becomes the nation of Israel in an ethnic sense in the Old Testament, after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you And to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. So I want to help us think about this question before we move on, uh, is what, what are we to make of these promises made to Abraham and his offspring and Israel in the Old Testament? And what bearing do they have on us today as Christians? And what bearing do they have on even modern day political Israel? What should we think about. This is something that Christians have wrestled with for many, many years, and it tends to be one of those issues sort of theologically that becomes very controversial and people have very passionate feelings. Let me just say that, friends, know that, that, that this is a complex, we're about to wade into deep theological waters here, and don't, don't, don't say, oh gosh, this is over my head. No, friends, you can understand it. Come on. Some of you know like video game codes that are so complex, it'd make your mind pop. You can understand that, then you can understand this. So, so hang with me, and don't be a wimpy little American and say, oh my gosh, I can't understand this. Yes, you can. All right, enough of that. This is certainly an issue where we need to have a lot of grace and um, charity towards one another if we may disagree with, uh, with other Christians on, on how these things play out. So, so the question I want us to wrestle with is, who are the offspring of Abraham? In an Old Testament literal sense, they are the, uh, the physical descendants of Abraham that become the ethnic people, the Old Testament nation of Israel, the Jews, the Hebrews. But I think that the Bible is actually, and we see this picked up in the New Testament, is actually pointing towards a spiritual reality of what this line of Abraham is. So let me read to you from Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. Now, he was an ethnic Jew, and he's interpreting uh, this verse here that we just read in Genesis 17. He said, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And so ultimately, all of these Old Testament promises that are made to Israel ultimately are fulfilled finally in Jesus who becomes the one true 
covenant keeper. He's the only one that can actually keep all of these, these, these conditions that God has put on Israel in the uh, Old Testament. And so let's skip now to Romans chapter 9. And Paul is wrestling with this question. He's helping his, he's not wrestling. The Holy Spirit has inspired him to teach on this issue. And he's helping people around him wrestle with this, this question of who are the offspring of Abraham? And so in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness with me, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart because he is lamenting the fact that many, if not most of his ethnic kinsmen, uh, Jews by ethnicity, have rejected Jesus for the most part. Certainly not all, but for the most part have rejected Jesus. And so he's lamenting that. Verse 3. For I, wish, I, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So notice Paul's heart here for the gospel. He said, I wish that I was cut off so that God would show mercy to my, my, my people, the, the ethnic Jews. But skip down to verse 6. It says this. Because we may ask, well, if God has made all these promises to these Old Testament people and it doesn't seem like it's worked out for them, They've by and large rejected Jesus. What's happened? Has this sovereign God that controls the universe failed? And Paul says, no. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Listen to this. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So in other words, not every ethnic Jew, physical descendants of Israel, belongs to Israel. So obviously there's, there's different meanings of what Israel means here. Verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, listen to verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So here's what I want you to see is that even in this physical picture of the, this nation of people that God is making through Abraham, a, a physical people called the Jews, they become like a physical picture that, has, that is pointing towards the people of God that God will make from all time. And so I want you to think of kind of a, a circle of ethnic Israel. And within ethnic Israel in the Old Testament, there were true Jews who were truly believing. And these people, these true believers, these Jews who believe in God are the true Israel. And there has always been one people of God. So it's not like the Old Testament has this group of people called the Jews that God dealt with. And boy, that was kind of confusing at times. And now he kind of shook the etch-a-sketch, you know, and Jesus came. And now he's kind of done with Israel. And now, like, we've got this group of people called the church. A lot of people think of it as sort of two tracks like that. That's not the way the Bible's presenting it. He's starting with a group of people, the ethnic Jews. And even within those ethnic Jews, there has always been a true remnant of people who truly had faith. So salvation has never been just because you were a Jew. It's always been by faith, right? But because you have faith in Jesus, because you have faith in God, 
and Jesus that will come. And then throughout the scriptures, we see this one people of God from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And finally, when Christ comes, because of Christ's work on the cross, he fulfills every condition that was put on the ethnic Jew. Every, he fulfills, fulfills every command of the law. And so in Jesus, who becomes the perfect and true Jew, the one law-abiding Israelite. All the promises are fulfilled. And now Jesus opens up the people of God, not just to the ethnic Jew, but to all who will call upon the name of the Lord, to the Gentile, to the Jew, to the barbarian, to the Scythian, to the Greek, to the Roman, all. And friends, this isn't a change in God's plan. Because remember his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. He says that through you... I will bless all the peoples of the earth, friends. So, so God has always had one plan, one people. In the Old Testament, his people were incubated, in a sense, in this sort of physical reality of, of ethnic Israel. And in the New Testament, his people are incubated in this sort of physical reality of the church. But friends, listen to this. Just because, just as you were, just because you were an ethnic Jew in the Old Testament doesn't mean you were saved. You had to have faith. Likewise, just because you're part of a church, because you're here, because your name's on a list, doesn't mean that you're saved. You have to truly have faith. So God has had one people of God. God has had one people from beginning to end. The church now in the New Testament has not replaced Israel. It has been added to true Israel. So when you hear these words in the scriptures, true Israel, just think of the one people of God from the beginning until now. The church doesn't then come to replace Israel. It comes to be added to true Israel because that has been God's promise from the beginning. So we may be asking, and I think this is a valid question. In fact, Paul anticipates this question. What then should we say about modern-day ethnic Jewish people? Has God forgotten them? Paul takes up that very question in Romans 11. So let me read a little bit out of Romans 11. I asked then, stay with me now, come on, stay with me. Shake it, go ahead, stretch a little bit, shake it, shake it out. What then, and where does this leave ethnic Israel? Verse 1 of Romans 11. I asked then, has God rejected his people? And Paul is speaking there of the physical descendants of Abraham, the ethnic Jew. By no means, he says. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the scripture says, Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Go then down to verse five. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So there's always been a believing Israel inside of the visible ethnic Israel, just like there's a true believing uh, people of God inside the visible church of God in the New Testament. So he says in verse 7, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, but the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So there was a remnant of these ethnic people that God gave his grace to, and the rest of them failed to attain God's blessing. And then what are we to make of them? So let's go to verse 11 of Romans 11. So I ask, 
Then did these ethnic Jews stumble in order that they might fail? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Listen to this now. Now, if their trespass, in in other words, their rejection of Christ, means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So he's pointing towards this day when God will reveal himself and include many of these ethnic Jews back into the olive tree of the people of God. Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from dead? So Paul is setting us up. He's about to answer this question because we're, ask, we're asking this question. Okay, if it seems like most of the ethnic Jews rejected God and he only saved a remnant of them, and that remnant is the true people of God that now has been expanded to the Gentiles and now is opened up for all who trust in Christ who is the one law-abiding true Jew, then what about these ethnic Jews? Has God passed them by? And he says, no, 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 no. Paul is pointing us towards this, this graciousness of God where he's going to come back around and bring many of these ethnic Jews back into the fold. And so, listen to verse 23. And even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. So God has planted this tree called the people of God. And there was true believers. And anybody that was not a believer, whether they were an ethnic Jew or not, he trimmed off those branches and they were discarded. And he grafted in Gentiles and all people, for whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. But then he's going back around and he's saying, but God has not forsaken those Jewish people. He has the ability to graft them back in. Again, verse 24, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, meaning the ethnic Jew, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial, a partial hardening has come upon Israel, and by that he means ethnic Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And so what I think Paul is saying there in verse 26 is not that every single ethnic Jew will be saved because of their ethnicity, But in a corporate, large-scale sense, God will once again be merciful to the ethnic Jew and will save a great number of Jews before Jesus comes again. So what then should we think about modern-day Israel? Friends, we should pray for modern-day Israel. What are we to make of Israel being formed as a state again in 1948 after hundreds and hundreds of years of scattering around the world, I think very likely that could be evidence of God's bringing Romans, this promise of God saving a whole multitudes of ethnic Jews again before Jesus comes again. I think that could be part of God's plan for that. But friends, here's where I want to just press on before we move on. Press in. 
is that Israel's hope, because lots of Christians get very sensitive about Israel, political Israel, and the land that they occupy in the Middle East. Friends, should we support Israel politically? Oh, certainly, by and large. They're surrounded by a bunch of uh, violent, uh, evil governments. And we should, we should certainly protect Israel. But friends, as we support Israel politically, we should never cloud the fact that their hope is not a piece of dirt in the Middle East. Their hope is Christ. You see, all these Old Testament promises of, of blessing and offspring and land, they're all Old Testament temporary earthly pictures that ultimately find their fulfillment in Christ and are ultimately are realized in Christ. So Israel's hope is not recognition by the UN or peace from their warlike neighbors. Israel's hope is Christ. And in our support of Israel, we should not miscommunicate to them that they are okay just because they're Jew. They're only okay in as much as they turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. So we can and should pray for Israel and we should send missionaries to them and we should have great hope, at least I think that's the hope of Romans 11, that God will graft unbelieving Israel, not every single one of them. I don't think that's what that word all means, but God will graft a great number of unbelieving Jews back into the tree not because they're Jewish, not because they're circumcised, not because they're following the law, but because they've trusted in Christ. Praise God. Well, let's keep going now. Verse 9. A little, a little uh, detour there. Let's get back onto it. So grace comes before obedience. Verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So God says, I'm going to make a people out of you. And then he says, and this is how we're going to seal it. Can you imagine? Abraham's like, ah. Okay. Verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So notice here, we just made a big point that grace comes before obedience. The good news of the gospel is not, if you will obey me, then I will accept you. But the good news of the gospel is, I have accepted you because of my sovereign mercy in Christ. Now, because I've accepted you, obey me. 
And here's this point that a church like Crosspoint needs to wrestle with, right? Because we, aren't we doctrine-loving people? Don't we love to extol the sovereign grace of God? And don't we reject any form of moralism or religion that says that if you do this, then God will help you? And people like us are prone to hang out on grace and never move on into obedience, I'll say that again because it's getting a little uncomfortable in here. Like, you're always talking about us. People like us who love doctrine like to emphasize grace and minimize obedience. And so, yes, point number one is that grace comes before obedience. But now, seeing this is just as important, obedience is Essential. Go back to verses 1 and 2. God is saying now, Abraham, because I've done this for you in Genesis 15, now you are obligated to walk before me as holy. And I'm going to make a sign that you are my man and everybody after you, you are my people, by cutting off the foreskin of your males as a sign, an everlasting sign that you are my people. Notice this, friends. What's the significance God is telling Abraham that, yeah, you can have good doctrine and understand who I am, but that doctrine leads you to the delight of duty and following him in his way. And so obedience is essential for Abraham and for every Christian that follows in Abraham's footsteps. That just because he's saved us, we can't just say, oh, well, we're Christians and we can just continue to live any way that we want. Now we've got to spend the rest of our life after sovereign grace hits our heart, discovering this word, repenting of sin, forgiving one another, digging into God's ways, loving one another, being God's people because he didn't just save us for ourselves. Remember, he saves Abraham and all of his descendants, the true believers in God, so that through them he can show his glory to an onlooking world. So our obedience is necessary. Our justification, I heard it put this way one time about two years ago, Doug Duncan was speaking to the men's lunch and he put it this way and I thought it was so beautiful. Our justification is beautiful, but then our sanctification, the way we then live out what God has done in us leads to the justification of others. So God saves us so that through our willing obedience to him, he would use it as a display of his beauty so that other people would look and trust in Jesus as well. So why circumcision? You may be wondering that, I'm sure. You probably haven't heard anything. You're like, circumcision? Oh my gosh, why did God do that? Couldn't there have been an easier way? Some have speculated, was it hygiene? Well, maybe. But I think that there's something much deeper a deeper spiritual meaning going on here. God is reminding Abraham. Because remember what happened in Genesis 16. God promised him offspring. Genesis 16, Abram and Sarai concoct this cockamamie plan. Well, it wasn't so crazy. I shouldn't say that. I'll be gracious to him. They, they, dis, they disobeyed. And it's as if God is saying to Abraham, hey, your human means, your plan to sort of make this offspring no, no, it's not going to work. I'm sovereign over here. And I'm going to, I'm going to forgive the graphic nature of this. I'm going to cut away the very tip of your ability to create life. Because I'm putting, I'm, right now I'm putting my, I'm just showing you, Abraham, that I'm sovereign over everything. And you're going to have to humble yourself. 
And in the most intimate way, God is reminding Abraham that he's in control. He's in control of Abraham's ability to have offspring and fulfill the promise. And I think also we see that something had to be taken away. Man is sinful. Man had accumulated disobedience. And God, even through this intimate, sensitive rite of circumcision, is showing Abraham and everybody who would follow him that we have to cut away our sinful flesh in order to follow a holy God. And I believe the ultimate purpose of circumcision, I think biblically, is that God is marking off a people. It is a visible reminder to the person who has been circumcised and to the whole nation and to the whole world. He is marking off a people. And he is saying that this mark, these people are mine. And God wants to do the same thing with his people in the new covenant, the church. And I think the sort of corresponding sign in the New Testament is baptism. I think there's a link between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament is that just as God was marking off a people for himself through circumcision, that gives way to the New Testament sign of baptism where God is marking off a people. That's why if you are a Christian, you should be baptized into the church, not because baptism saves you, just, because, just like circumcision doesn't save you, but it marks you off to an onlooking world because God wants to save a people to put them in a community, not so that they can be some sort of indwelling, incestuous community that doesn't have anything to do with the world around them, but he wants to mark them off so that they can be a light to an onlooking world and be a display of his goodness. And he wants to give them, in a sense, kind of a team jersey and say, these are my people. That's what circumcision was in the Old Testament and that's what baptism is in the New. So are you a Christian and have you not been baptized? Oh, you need to obey Christ and be baptized. And you need to be baptized into the family of God. It doesn't save you, but it's like you standing up. And it's not just a personal spiritual experience where you're like, oh, I came to Christ and now I need to be baptized. No, it is more than just a personal spiritual experience. It is you standing up and saying, I'm with God and his people. And so God marks off a people. And notice also, friends, this beautiful, this beautiful truth that it's not just for the Jew. Even there we see the missionary heart of God. Did you see in verses 13 and 14 where it says, even some foreigner that's part of your house, circumcise him as well. So God has never been just concerned with one group of people. He's concerned with all peoples of the earth. God's heart has always been a heart for missions. God has always had a heart for all peoples. And so we extol this great truth of the gospel that grace comes before obedience. And we're not saved by our works, but Jesus' work. And as a secondary, very important truth, right after that, God is reminding us that obedience is essential. And he marks off this command in his people by telling Abraham to be circumcised and obey him. And you may be wondering, is, why, is, why, don't we still, why don't we still require this? Well, they dealt with that issue. Uh, if you've ever gone through a membership interview at Crosspoint, you will notice that we did not ask you if you were circumcised. Praise be to Jesus. <laughs> You see, this is an everlasting covenant. Friends, remember we're talking about Jesus. He's the one true Jew that has fulfilled all of the commands of the old covenant. Jesus has fulfilled the law for us so that now these Old Testament laws 
have been fulfilled in Jesus and the righteousness that he accrued through his perfect life now is credited to us. And so this became a question in the early church. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, read Acts chapter 15 this afternoon. This question was, uh, arose in the early church. All these Gentiles, these uncircumcised, pork-eating, nasty people are actually coming to faith in Jesus. What are we going to do? People not like us are coming to Christ. Oh my gosh. And so it was this big question. Do we need to make these Gentiles be circumcised as well? And Paul and Barnabas said, no, the gospel is now Christ has fulfilled that for us. Now we must trust in Christ. Now what it means to be a person of God is not to be circumcised, but to trust in Jesus who fulfilled the law for us and defeated death and sin in the grave on the cross. And so they rightly decided in the first church council there in Acts 15 that uh, Gentiles don't have to be circumcised because that Old Testament shadow has passed away and been fulfilled in Christ. The Old Covenant is fulfilled by Jesus and gives way to the New Covenant. So let's keep going. Now, verse 15. So we've got one and two here. Grace comes before obedience. Obedience is essential. And now we're going to see, number three, God fulfills his promise by means that seem impossible. So verse 15, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Verse 17, listen to this. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, can you imagine that? God speaks to you and you fall on the ground and laugh? Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He's like, still got his mindset. No, maybe we can do it this way. Verse 19, God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So I want you to see, friends, grace comes before obedience. Obedience is essential. And now we see God fulfilling his promise to Abraham and ultimately to us by means that humans cannot accomplish, by means that are impossible in an earthly sense. Abraham laughed at the thought of Sarah giving birth. It was impossible in his mind. So friends, why? Why has God, this has been decades before in Genesis 12, when God promised Abraham offspring and blessing. Why has God let this drag on this long only to answer this prayer now when Abraham is 100 and Sarah's 90? Because God didn't have the right, you know, ingredients to put in the potion, right? He's like, oh, I'm finally ready, Abraham. I'm sorry I was late. It's been 40 years since I spoke to you. I know God's finally sort of, no. God, see what's happening here in God's sovereign plan. God is letting the situation become so bleak so that when God fulfills his word, Abraham and Sarah and an onlooking world will have no other recourse 
But to look back and say, it is God who is good on his word. We didn't have anything to do with it. Friends, the application, I think, is obvious. God's covenant with Abraham and with every Christian since then is not a partnership where God puts up some starter funds and we have to invest it wisely. God is not a venture capitalist looking for a good return on his investment. God is the sovereign, merciful Savior, and he has purposely arranged for things in Abraham's life to get to a point where human means cannot accomplish his plan. And that is exactly where you and I were when Jesus saved us. These impossible circumstances are a picture of salvation, friends. Oh, friends, if you're a Christian today, it's not because you did good things with what God gave you and he was pleased with you and therefore he accepted you. It's because you were dead in your sins. The situation was beyond repair. It was impossible. We could have laughed if God, if we would have thought that God would save you, but God in his sovereign mercy made you alive in Christ Jesus. What was impossible, God made possible through his grace to you and any other Christian who ever has trusted in Christ. Don't miss that, friends, because seeing that gospel again and again and again will humble you and keep you from being a jerk Christian and will produce in you faith, right? It'll produce in you faith because if God can save you, dear friend, he can save anybody. And dear parent, listen to me. The parent who has a rebellious teenager who is a million miles away from God, when you see this, this should give you faith that God can do what no person can do. God is not bound by good raw material. God is sovereign, and he calls things to life that are dead. So trust in God, friends. Trust in God who makes the impossible possible. Friends, that's the gospel. That's how he saved you, whether you were a good little church kid, or that's how he saved you if you were a meth head strung out on drugs. He saved you by the impossible agency of his grace. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power. And by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for you. Let's wrap this up. Verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Get in this scene now. Imagine the intensity. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. That's quite a day for the family photo album, isn't it? <laughs> My wife is into crafting and putting together photo albums, and she puts a lot of care into the design around the pictures. You know, when I was a kid growing up, my mom just had all these pictures, just Polaroid stuck to a little sheet, and it says Beach, 1978. Jennifer's got all this stuff, like, around it. I wonder what type of clip art you would put around this picture. 
No pun intended with clip art there, by the way. <laughs> Verse 24. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So I end with this final point that I think might be the most important of all, which all of this has been building to, is that since Jesus... His flesh was cut, which is what a picture of circumcision is pointing to. We can know, obey, and glorify God. So let's go. Let's end by reading Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And I want, to see, I want you to see how this ties together, how Jesus' work on the cross ties together with this Old Testament sign of circumcision. This is how Paul interprets all of this in Colossians chapter 2. He says in verse 11, In him... You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So he's saying there's a, there's a inward, eternal circumcision that the fleshly Old Testament circumcision was pointing to. So circumcision was never just about the cutting away of some flesh in a temporal, earthly sense. But it's pointing towards our hearts which need to be cut away. Our hearts which need to be circumcised. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So friends, let me summarize this and wrap it up and pray and let's respond to Christ. God gives this temporary Old Testament marker of circumcision to mark off his people. But here's the problem. His people could never fully obey and walk with him blamelessly like he commanded them, right? Even if they could accomplish, even if as a 100-year-old man and a 13-year-old teenager, they could actually bear the physical right of circumcision, that was no guarantee that their hearts would be right. And so we have all, all of us, Every ethnic Jew, every person in the Old Testament has never been able to fulfill God's holiness. And so we are in a quandary. We cannot do it ourselves. We were all dead in our uncircumcised hearts. And God comes to us in the person of Jesus who was circumcised for us on the cross, right? This circumcision, this cutting away of the flesh points to something far bigger than just foreskin, friends. Jesus was cut. His flesh was cut on the cross. He bore the penalty for our law-breaking. But because he is 
perfect. His sacrifice is sufficient to extinguish and absorb and satisfy all of God's holiness. And he extinguishes it there on the cross. And then he rises again in victory over death and its consequences and hell and every devil and now stands victorious. And because Jesus was cut on the cross, now we can be made whole in him, friends. And so all of this Old Testament sign and imagery is pointing forward towards that moment when Jesus will finally fulfill the holiness of God for his people and now will make a people for himself through his work on the cross. So friends, the message of Genesis 17 is that you're not a Jew if you're an ethnic Hebrew and you're not a Christian if you just attend church or grow up in the South. God has made a people for himself and it has always been by faith. Faith in Jesus who alone satisfied God's law and who alone can make us right with God and who you alone must look to even now. Let's pray. Father, these have been deep waters. I pray that I haven't lost or bored these dear friends. Lord, you are a holy and serious God and we are a flippant and self-absorbed people. You demand us to walk holy and blameless before you, but Father, we cannot do that in and of ourselves. Our only hope for walking blameless before you on that day, that judgment day, is if we are in Christ. It won't be in our circumcision in the flesh. It won't be in our church attendance. It won't even be in our understanding of doctrine. It will only be if we are in Christ, trusting in him having faith in him, and even that faith, God, was was your kind mercy given to us. And God, we know that that faith must then produce some measure of obedience in our lives. So God, would you make us holy by what Christ has done, and would we feel the weight of his beautiful sacrifice, and would that compel us to live joy-seeking lives for you in obedience? And for the person that's come in this room that did not understand the gospel, that maybe was caught up in some moralism or some way of making themselves right with you, God, would you show them that their hope is not the cutting of the flesh or the abiding of the law or the church attendance or any other thing, but it is Christ. And when Christ saves a person, he becomes so beautiful and so lovely that we are compelled because we're in love We want to obey you. So Lord, would you do this for us? And Lord, for your kind and with your kind and sovereign mercy, would you save anybody in this room who hasn't seen that? For your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name.